love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny Chisholm, and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined by co-host Kunjul Patel, and we're bringing you a conversation with Afaf Turjaman, who is a board member and trustee at the Islamic Society of Santa Barbara. She shares about her connection with the sunset and how it brings her closer to God during prayer. We'll also hear about her appreciation for her practice of praying at dawn, and about the joys of celebrating Ramadan with her community. Afaf has such a peaceful way about her, and I hope you feel fully welcomed into this conversation. I'm really glad to be here today with my co-host Kunjul Patel and Afaf Turjaman, who is a board member and trustee at the Islamic Society of Santa Barbara, our local mosque, which is located in Goleta off the Stork Road exit of the 101. First, we acknowledge the history of the land that we call Santa Barbara, which has been stewarded by the Shumash people for thousands of years before it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We humbly seek to be in conversation with the Chumash today as they continue to lead by an example of deep spirituality and community. Afaf, can you share your preferred pronouns and how long have you lived in Santa Barbara? She is my preferred pronoun. I've lived in Santa Barbara since 1977. So that'd be 44 years ago. All right. What's something that you particularly enjoy about Santa Barbara being your home? Oh, gee, there's so many things that I love about Santa Barbara. <laughs> but I guess the cliche that everyone uses is I, I just love the weather here. Hmm. One of the days that I get to appreciate that more than ever is today when I hear the news and how Texas is suffering through their snowstorms and all the problems. But I love the weather. I love the people here. I love our beautiful sunsets and beaches. One of the things that I do, I try to do maybe three, four times a week is go out and watch the sunset. I live very close to one of the golf courses here. And so I look outside right before sunset and if there's clouds in the sky, I'll just get in the car and drive over and watch the sunset from there. Hmm. There's a beautiful spot here where you see the sun just setting into the ocean. And then there's a lot of people there, but as soon as the sun sets, they leave. But then I stay for an extra half an hour because it just gets more and more beautiful. You mm -hmm. see this great canvas in front of you, just turning colors. It's so gorgeous. Yeah, the, the cool thing about sunsets in Santa Barbara is that you don't actually see the sun set fully, right? There's still more that it's setting. So we do get that beautiful canvas look afterwards, which I... I always thought it was a fun, cool fact about Santa Barbara, the way it's it's shaped or angled. We don't actually fully see the sunset over the horizon. Ah, and there are very few places where you can see the sun actually setting into the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's wonderful to see it move in different directions, depending if it's summer or, or winter. Mm. So it goes, right now it's going more and more to the north, and <laughs> I see less and less of it. Yeah. But that's part of the beauty, ever-changing. Are there a couple spots that you particularly like, or is there like a go-to spot for you to watch the sunset? Well, my go-to spot is right here because it's just like a five-minute drive. I go to the golf course. Hmm. That's at the end of Hollister before I go to Bukhara. And when I used to go years ago with my daughter, there was hardly anyone there. And I think people are discovering it. So when I go, there are people who are set up. They park their car so that the back of it, they can open it up and sit and have dinner or have tea and sit with their spouse or their children and watch the sunset together. But it's really beautiful. And I take my, my prayer rug because right after sunset is one of our fourth prayer time. And so if I want to stay there long, I don't want to miss the prayers. So I will perform my prayer there. And it just adds a little more spirituality to the whole thing. Yeah, how wonderful to be able to practice in nature and to combine the two. <laughs> yeah, it's really beautiful. You see beautiful sunsets in Santa Barbara all the time. 
Yeah. Inevitably, most of our guests <laughs> bring up something about just the 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 nature of of Santa Barbara and how amazing it is to, yeah, to have a connection to the natural world. It really helps us dive into our own spiritual practices because of the beauty of creation and and creator is is right in front of us. Yeah, and I'm lucky. I live in a condo that has a small balcony. I live on the second floor, and so my go-to spot just to sit in between classes or during my break. I've made a little garden <laughs> on that balcony, mm. so I go and I sit whenever I get a chance because it's facing west, and there's three really tall palm trees about fifty or hundred yards from where I am, and there's a pair of hawks that have nested there, and I just sit and watch them. And they became my friends. <laughs> They're just I, just, I just love watching them and I can see, predict their pattern. They must have nested in that tree long before I noticed them. But whenever I get a chance, I just go sit out there and enjoy sitting there. I've made a little garden, so it's just a very peaceful place for me. And if I don't get to go to the beach to see the sunset, then I'll sit right here and, and watch it from here. So you've, you've made neighbors with more than just human residents of Santa Barbara. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. When my kids were little, we used to watch a movie that they loved called Lady Hawk with Michelle Pfeiffer. She turns into a hawk. The scream that's in the movie. I can hear them. They do the same thing. They call to each other. Yeah. It's been such a pleasure working with your daughter, Ella, on the podcast. What was it like to raise a family in Santa Barbara? Oh, gee, that's a good question. I came here as a student with the hopes of graduating from UCSB and along with my husband. And our plan was to go back to Saudi Arabia. And that's where we were both born. And it took us a while to make a family. But I used to think, okay, as soon as I have children, I'm going to go move back to Saudi Arabia. I don't want to raise my children far away from family and different kind of society. But then I soon realized that every society has its ills and it's really up to the parents to help form a really good foundation for their children. And so I knew it would be a challenge to raise children as Muslims in a community where they would be a minority. So it was really important to me that I would raise them as proud Muslims. I wanted them to love their religion, to be proud. And because I've seen so many families where the children, as they grow up, they lose their identity or uh, don't identify as Muslim, or sometimes they're embarrassed. And I was scared of that, especially after 9-11. And I never wanted my kids to ever lose their identity. And I wanted them to be proud. And so one of the things that I, I tried to give them a good foundation at home, but I knew that what they really would need is the tools and knowledge It'd be something they'd need to have. They need to learn about the religion so they can speak about it, so they can really understand it and feel confident in their belief. And it took a lot of work. And, and one of the things I did, I used to be a speaker for ING, the Islamic Network Group. I started the Islamic Speakers uh, Bureau in Santa Barbara because their goal is to educate about Islam. So we used to go to schools and give presentations because part of the curriculum like in eighth grade and in one of the world history classes in high school, is to teach about Islam. And ING had found out that most teachers really don't know how to teach about Islam. So they either skip that chapter or they show some terrible movie like Not Without My Daughter and something really that was negative. So the idea is for us to reach out to teachers and ask them if they would like us to come into the classroom and do a presentation. And uh, a lot of teachers were very happy. We followed the First Amendment rules and no proselytizing, just education. And I gave those presentations, you know, I offered them to many groups around town, churches, synagogues, and other groups. And whenever I would get an invitation that was outside of the class, I would invite my children to take part with me, especially if there were children in the audience or young people. And I think there's nothing better to prepare you for a presentation than to, to really learn to sit and be able to answer questions and, and present. And so my children did that with me. And I was also on the board of the Santa Barbara Interfaith Initiative. And every year we would have annual interfaith dinners, invite speakers 
and I always made sure that my children went with me and were volunteers as hosts. So they really got a lot of experience in the interfaith world. And I think in the beginning, they used to really complain. But I think <laughs> down the road, they like Allah just always says, Mom, thank you for giving me that experience. It's really helped. And I know how, how important it would be for them later on in life in their path here. That if they don't want to be othered, they don't want to be marginalized, that they need to be able to speak up and not have others speak for them. Yeah, that's that's so important about having others speak for you. I grew up in a very similar situation as it sounds like your your daughters did with with you, where my mom felt the same way that she had come to this country. It was very new, but she wanted us to have a connection to our culture and to to our faith. And and it was difficult. It wasn't easy as a child growing up to have your foot in in what it felt like was two different worlds. But now I look back on it and I'm so grateful that I was given those tools, like you mentioned, to be able to speak confidently about my faith and to not ever be put in a situation where I felt othered. And, and I think it's just so fascinating that you created the group where you would go into schools and educate about Islam, because I remember after 9-11, there was a lot of fear and really just ignorance that could have easily been solved if we had educa proper education mm -hmm. available. I agree with you. When 9-11 happened, all of a sudden, we had this spotlight put on us. Yeah. Muslims all over us, like, okay, and we were naked. Yeah. We definitely were not prepared. There were some Islamic organizations, but most Muslims living here, they just were living their life, mm -hmm. making a living, bringing up their children, and they weren't really prepared that they'd be put on a spotlight where they'd be asked questions or have to speak out. Or It was really unfortunate because at the time when we were actually mourning after that, along with the country after that event, but we were also having to sit and a lot of Muslims were attacked. We'd have to be put on the defensive. And so it was a time when a lot of people had to make a choice. I've seen people who changed their names. If they were wearing hijab, they took off their hijab. They didn't mm -hmm. want to identify as Muslims. It was some of them for safety reasons. They felt like they were vulnerable. And there were those who stepped up. And there was so much demand for people to uh, speak up. Mm -hmm. So much. We'd get invitations almost a weekly basis. They'd want a speaker here or there. And that was the time when so many people felt, okay, I need to to step up. Otherwise, other people are going to be speaking for me. There's a void there. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely experienced similar things as well, of course, in the wake of 9-11. Just being brown-skinned was something that you were put on edge um, and on guard, and you felt like you had to defend yourself. But the yeah the speaking up for yourself really sticks with me because even in school we're barely taught about hinduism or buddhism or islam or jainism or any of these other religions i mean we're we're barely really taught about judaism right and so and and the things that we're taught about are not necessarily informed or correct and so when you're a person of that faith learning and hearing it from someone else you're sitting there like, wait, wait, that's not right. Hold on. That's also not right. Wait, I, I could teach you this, but you don't, especially as a child, you don't necessarily feel empowered. And so I think that that is just a really beautiful initiative that you can choose when you're in those moments of, in those tight spots, you can choose to either to pull away from your faith, or you can choose to almost dive in deeper and say, okay, well, I I'm going to take up the mantle and I'm going to go and educate those around me and, and, and shed light onto the beautiful sides of my faith so that it's not a scary thing and so that it's not something that other people are now speaking or defining for me or for my children or for other people who are, are following this faith. So that's Absolutely. very inspi inspiring for sure. Afaf, you've been you've been in the interfaith world for quite some time. 
What's what are what are some of the biggest themes that come through on a regular basis as you talk to people and you know have conversations across worldviews really? What yeah, what are some themes that really come out as as true across many traditions? One of the things that really surprised me was how little people know. There were some things I I assumed people would know. For example, I when my children were at school, they had something called the Festival of Lights. And every religion was being represented, and I realized Islam wasn't being represented. So I talked to the teacher, and she said, well, you don't have anything to have to do with light. And yes, there is. We, we, there's so many things. In Ramadan, children, especially in Egypt, they walk around the streets with these lanterns, and our months are, are all based on the lunar cycle, the moon. And so I said, that's, that's really important. And so I got her to, to agree to put Islam as part of the Festival of Lights. And that was great because other schools started doing the same. And so I said, I don't mind doing presentations in other schools other than my children's schools. And so that was, I thought it was good. But then I was giving a presentation. I was talking about Hajj at the time. And of course, the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, it's all based on the story of Prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, and his struggles and his journey and his faith. And so I was talking about him and there was a lady sitting in the front row and she turned to her husband and she said, is she talking about our Abraham? And then I realized, okay, maybe I was very presumptuous. I maybe I thought everybody knew that we we all, were all talking about the same Abraham. So it it just occurred to me that first of all, I was maybe I needed to explain more. But the second thing, I felt like she looked at me as another that must be talking something different, something foreign. And maybe the story stood out to her that it was familiar. That's why she asked if I was talking about her Abraham. So that was one thing. It just over and over, I'm shocked at how little people really know. And that made me more aware of the need to not necessarily go out and educate, but that's certainly part of it, but to, to, to just talk to people, to know people and Again, I was shocked to know how many people would tell me, you're the first Muslim I met. I've never met a Muslim before. And I was like, you'd be surprised that you probably met many. Maybe they don't look visibly Muslim. Maybe they're not wearing a hijab or wearing some clothing that you would identify with as a Muslim, but Muslims dress in all types of clothes. <laughs> and so that was another thing. But Another thing is that I wanted people to know is they think of Muslims as a monolithic block. All Muslims are the same. And it's exactly the opposite. And we're so diverse. We're so diverse. Muslims come from every country in the world, every nationality, every race, speak different languages, dress differently, eat different types of food, sing, listen to different songs. So it's so diverse, and, and a lot of people think Muslims are Arabs. And in reality, and that comes through in my uh, talks when I, uh, that I give, is only about 80% of Muslims in the world are Arab. The rest are 78%, or my math is going bad, 82% are, are not Arabs. They don't speak Arabic, they don't understand Arabic, and uh, the only thing that binds everyone is, is their faith. And so, yeah, just just uh, you could be you could see a Muslim with a hijab or not a hijab, and they're both Muslim, and doesn't mean they're one of is has less faith or is less righteous. And so, just the diversity. And if there is any group that's diverse uh, anywhere in the world, but even in the United States, uh, is the Muslim. All you have to do is come to our Eid prayers. And this is something I enjoy very much. Eid is the celebration, the festival celebration at the end of Ramadan or at the end of the pilgrimage. We have two major Eids in, in Islam. And so when we go to the Eid prayers, this is something I really look forward to because right now I can see visions in my head. 
all people coming in and with their ethnic clothes, their colorful, beautiful clothes, speaking different languages, bringing you know food for us to share from their country. And of course, there's a lot of American-born Muslims. So more and more, we have second generation and third generation Muslims. But just that we're so diverse, but the one thing that you know binds us all together is our faith. I always find it interesting when people try to uh, group other you know, groups, if you will, as, as a monolith together. Because, I mean, if you just look at people, we all have the same blood, right? We all breathe the same oxygen. And yet we as humans tend to find all these different reasons to, to other people or to label them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually one of the beautiful things that I really appreciate about Islam that I've I've learned over the years of of having Muslim friends is is the diversity, and it's it's that that thought that your your faith is what's binding you together, not the area in which you live or the language which you speak or the food which you eat or the way that you dress. And so it's just that's just such a beautiful thing. And I was reading actually about the Islamic Center in Golida and how it is actually a very beautiful representation, a physical representation of the diversity of Islam because in the Santa Barbara Galita area, there there isn't a predominant culture, if you will, that is Muslim. That diversity within Islam is is very beautifully represented in Galita. Is is that correct? Or is this is something I really appreciate about (laughs) living in Santa Barbara, actually, because it's a small town. We kind of have to stick together because I, if I go to LA, else there's so many mosques there or any big city, but they say this is the black mosque or this is the Indian mosque, the Desi mosque, and this is the Afghani mosque, and this is the Arab mosque, and. It's so sad that people are separating by nationality. But here in Santa Barbara, I love the fact that because we're so few, I think we all have to come together and we all work together to to build this beautiful mosque, which is really one of, I would say, one of the major milestones in all my years here. It, It was a long, hard journey, but we stuck it out over like 18, 19 years. And I hope you got to visit because it's really beautiful and it's a good representation of you know all the hard work that went into it. But it's also, I would say, it's a culmination of not just our community working so hard, but I think it's, I mean, not just the Muslim community, but it's the greater community that came together when we used to have our hearings, the city planning and all that. I mean, it took forever. <laughs> we had to jump through hoops and go through a lot of hurdles. And and a lot of it was our fault, but it, it took time. But there was some opposition. But the way the interfaith community came out, came out and stood for us. And I think like so many churches, faith leaders just came out to speak on that night when they're, you know, whether we were going to get a permit or not. And, you know, I could just cry at the thought of it because even people who couldn't come wrote letters. But for instance, Rabbi Steve Cohen from B'nai B'rith, we'd really made a lot of allies in the community. And he came out along with all the other faith leaders and the, the meeting just kept going on and on and everybody wanted to speak. And he stayed, even though I knew the next morning, early in the morning, he had to catch a flight to England to attend his daughter's wedding. Oh, wow. So the fact that he came and he stayed and stayed till he got a chance to speak means a lot to me. But we made real allies in the community and we've all stood up for each other. And it's just, it means so much to me that we have so many partners. I was curious, actually, about that. You mentioned the long journey that it took almost 18, 19, 20 years. What what kept you going through all of that time? And what was your thought process around it? Because a lot of times, especially nowadays, I notice if people face even a little resistance, they, they just say, oh, okay, I'm done. 
<laughs> time to walk away. Like this is not meant to be, but I mean, it, the mosque in Goleta is truly a, it's a, a labor of love over many, many years. And so I, I was curious, what, what was it that kept you and your family going throughout all that time? Oh, it was a community effort. That's for sure. It wasn't just us for sure. It was a community effort. And we knew this is something that has to get done. I remember when my daughter, Dahlia, my, I have three girls and a boy. So my third child is, is a girl, Dahlia. And she was in second grade, I think. And we, I think at that time we bought the land and we were so excited. We're going to build the mosque. We're going to build the mosque. And I used to take my kids to Quran classes and Islamic studies classes and in a place that was um, like we rented, that was near an automotive part, parts <laughs> place. Where they, so it wasn't a great, a great place, but that's where they got their education from a wonderful teacher that we had. But every day she'd ask, mom, when are you going to build the mosque? I say, oh, by next year, by next year. And then after a while, I knew it was taking so long. And I'd say, oh, in a couple of years. And she would come back to me. And then it was so hard to give her. So I keep pushing it back so she won't keep asking me anymore. But she was out of college <laughs> by the time we got oh built. My so, yeah, finally, we, there was a lot of determination. We're going to get this done. And we need to leave something for our children and uh, Muslim communities, they'll, families, they'll come here after us. But I think the mosque here is really something that we gave to the greater community, to Santa Barbara and Goleta, not just for the Muslim community. And it's like it's open for anybody to go in anytime. We have the, the prayer hall on the second floor, and then we have the first floor, which is open to the community. We have lectures, we have speakers and talks and classes and we break our fast in Ramadan we didn't get a chance to use it much until <laughs> COVID came around and shut us down but we do still pray in the parking lot I don't get to go that often because I'm teaching it during that time but like last week we had a break so yeah we just pray outside in the parking lot and it's still a blessing you get to pray outdoors and you watch the white-tailed kite and the hawks <laughs> flying around it's just really beautiful. There's still a place that brings us together. I wanted to mention something at the, the planning or the permit meeting when everybody was speaking. There wasn't a single person at that time that spoke against, against us building the mosque. But at the end, I think it was Roger Aceves, he said, this isn't a hate meeting. This is a love fest <laughs> because everybody was just so pro getting us the permit. So. That's really yeah. encouraging to hear. I feel like I see a lot of well-intentioned people who want to show up as allies for many different types of communities. And there, and there are obviously so many ways in which, which various communities can use support. And it sounds like the work of allyship is something that takes place in relationship over a long period of time. I mean, it sounds like the people who were able to really help the most in a very tangible way are people who who were close with you and who had built relationships with you and with your community to show up to things that seem probably not very interesting or sexy, like a city planning meeting or something like that. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on what tangible ways communities can stand up for each other and help support each other. I agree with you 100%. It does take work and it takes uh, dedication. And I think, again, it was after 9-11. I, I mean, I was never really that much doing interfaith work or anything before 9-11. I was just being a mom, taking care of my children. And then after 9-11, I think I'm going to have to give credit to Steve Jacobson, who was the pastor of Goleta Press at that time. He applied for the Ford Foundation. He, he got a grant. And then so he started this group called the Sons and Daughters of Abraham. And he got six people from each of the Christian, Muslim, and Jewish community. And we would meet once a month. We would meet at a restaurant, and we would just get to know each other. And slowly, slowly, we would build relationships. We got to know each other. And then there's nothing like sitting and talking over a meal, right? Food brings people together. And then, then he started bringing up like a, the question of the day. And he would 
any subject, courtship in your religion. Tell us about how do you do that or death. How do you deal with death? So he'd bring up different subjects. We would talk. So there was educational, but mostly was getting to know each other and build bridges and to get to know each other as people. After a while, we started, instead of restaurants, we'd meet at each other's homes. And so again, that adds another layer of, of intimacy with each other. And so that was one of the first groups I was part of. And then there was the Santa Barbara Interfaith Initiative. And I was on the board of that group. And again, we would deal with social justice uh, issues, things that are important no matter what our faith was. We worked on building homes for Habitat for Humanity. We'd all go and work together. And we'd have these dinners, we'd invite speakers, we'd get to know each other. And I think I give him a lot of credit, honestly, Steve Jacobson, but because he was also on the board of the Santa Barbara Interfaith Initiative. And we as a group, Muslims and Jews, we started this group called Quran Torah Study. And we would get together once a month and we would choose part of either a Jewish a scripture or the Quran. And hopefully something that was in common in both, and we would talk about it. We would study. It was a study group. But again, that, that helped build real relationships. And people I've met and have gotten to know through these groups are still my really good friends. And it does take, I'm not saying it's really hard work, but it, it is a, a commitment and a dedication. It's something mm -hmm. that you really believe that you building bridges between people of different faith is important. I mean, I can go on and on. There's so many groups. Right now, part of the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom. So it's a group of six. There, there's another chapter that started in Santa Barbara, but our chapter was, the first one is in New Jersey, but the first one on the West Coast is the Santa Barbara group that I belong to, six Jewish and six Muslim women. And again, we we meet and we work together and we do a service like Cook for Sarah House, or again, we also worked with Habitat for Humanity or go to someone's home that's sick and, and help clean their home. So things like that, it really bring, brings people close. And a lot of people just aren't used to seeing Muslim and Jewish women sitting together and enjoying each other's company. Mm -hmm. So the creating, having allyship and partnership is, is really important because we stand up for each other. We show up for each other. When the shooting happened in New Zealand, that awful, horrible event, everybody came out when we had the vigil at the courthouse. So many people were there. And so that's, as humans, that's what we, we should do. I'd love to hear about a tradition or practice within Islam that maybe most people in Santa Barbara wouldn't know about, whether it's something that all Muslims are called to do or something that's part of your personal practice, that maybe something that helps you show up to do the work that you need to do in the world. You know, Muslims have to, to pray five times a day. There are five pillars in Islam, but one of them and one of the most important ones, because you do it on a daily basis, is the prayer. And so there's an early morning prayer that you do after dawn and before the sun rises. And then there's like the noon prayer, afternoon prayer, the evening prayer right after sunset, and then the night prayer. And um, this is part of our religion, and this is what we have to do. And so I get up early in the morning. I mean, the five times a day prayer, people say, what, five times a day? How come you have to do that? But honestly, it's something that we get really busy every day with our work, with our studies, with our shopping, with taking care of the kids, that it's easy to just forget about God. But when you have to do that prayer, you kind of have to pull yourself away from worldly things and uh, concentrate on what's really important in your life. You wash up and you do your prayer. So the washing, so there's physical cleanliness and you purify you know your spirit your emotions your mind you face mecca and you give us a short prayer it takes five ten minutes but basically you get away from the worldly things and connect with god the early morning prayer is something that's uh, special for me because i get out of bed i'm groggy i'm sleepy but then it's so quiet and you hear the birds 
and then you wash up and uh, you stand in front on the prayer rug and you face my can you pray but then it's a special prayer because your mind is clear and your senses aren't bombarded by all the noises around you and so that's the time i sit calm and i spend extra time at the end of supplication and really connecting and so that's that's a, a special time for me it just gives me a sense of peace what do you mean when you say supplication well the prayer is something um that's mandatory they're different lens but then after you finish uh most people sit and do supplication which is talking to god you you praise god but then you ask <laughs> if you want anything for yourself for your family for your community for the world you ask for forgiveness it's it's a very personal time you just it's between you and god and you talk to him so so it is a special time and there's another time that became a tradition in our family but you know the quran i'm sure you know the quran but um yes. it's the holy book <laughs> see sometimes i don't want to be presumptuous but i'm sure you know <laughs> but you know it's it's our holy book and it's it was revealed in the month of ramadan and these are the words of god so many people around the world memorize at least part of it and many 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 people millions of people actually memorize the whole thing my sister my sister-in-law have memorized it even in their later years it's a beautiful book and even if you don't you have to know at least some of it so you can pray because part of the prayer is reciting some of the quran and it's just encouraged that you read it you read it and so most of the time in ramadan which is our month of fasting which is coming up on April 13 less than in less than 2 months we people read the quran sometimes once in the whole month some people twice three times but it is a month of worship a month of just focusing on a new connection with god and so what i've done in the past i don't know has it been the last 15 20 years i decided that i want to read the whole of, the whole of the quran in ramadan and so at the end there's a supplication again of having finished the whole quran and if i'm really really good <laughs> i read it really fast i tried to get as much out of it as i can the night before the end of ramadan i would gather my family together because and then we do a supplication together and it is said that there's hundreds and thousands and millions of angels that descend because they all want to hear this supplication of you having finished the quran and so it's something that now my children look forward to and i feel like okay i got to do it <laughs> because i don't want to disappoint anyone but it is a special feeling to be able to do that like for my children it's so hard because they don't speak arabic that well and it, it takes some time dedication it's about 600 pages but it's full of parables and stories and lessons and uh, it's just beautiful and so that's another tradition that we we try to keep up because i remember my father used to do that i love how community and family can help us show up to do the things that we want to do but sometimes we don't have the motivation or strength to do ourselves yeah so many things that we do now that i i didn't do before i had kids <laughs> we we had to establish our own traditions because i'm bringing up my kids in a community when they go to school their friends are in school are are not muslim and so when you live in a muslim country then everybody is doing the same thing and uh, you don't feel like you have to establish any other traditions than what everybody else is doing but one of the things i i realized here that i that i need to do that and so this is one of our traditions reading the quran and finishing it at least i finish it but they get to enjoy reap the <laughs> rewards and the night before ramadan you know our months are based on the lunar cycle and so when you spot the new moon this crescent that means the next day is the beginning of the month and so everybody is every year is tomorrow ramadan we don't know and and everybody looks forward to it it's like a welcome guest that all muslims welcome into their homes for a month and it's and we don't know 
And so one of the traditions we've established is to go, we drive up to Ferren Road right before sunset. We face uh, the west side and we see the sun go down and then we look for the crescent. And we see, I say, everybody, whoever finds it first gets $5. <laughs> I did that once, but it's, it's hard to see. There is a little sliver of a moon and everybody downloads the app. And it's easier to find when you have the app that shows you where the constellations and the moon and the stars are. And so that became traditional. And then if we see it, that's great. Of course, we don't base it on our own sighting. We go with the community. The whole idea is you are part of a community and you go along with them. But it's fun to do that. Also, the last day of Ramadan, we're not sure if it, Ramadan this year is going to be 29 or 30 days. So on the 29th night, we go. And we, well, it's like the eve of the 30th. We go, we take, we're fasting. So we take some water, we take our dates and we drive up there again and we look for the moon. And if we see it, then we know that the next day is Eid and Ramadan has ended. And if not, then we have one more day of fasting. So this is just traditions that we've, we've established here. I think those are quite fun. <laughs> They're fun. Yeah. I always found Ramadan to be so fascinating in terms of, again, growing up Hindu, we also have many festivals where we fast and there are varying ways of fasting. But what I was always taught is that the whole purpose of fasting is that you set your mind on God, right? You're not partaking in, in worldly pleasures such as food or later when I grew up, I learned that other religions and other faiths had had different ways of of fasting. Lent, for example, what I was taught is that you give up something. And and it was so interesting growing up to see how as a child you would think, oh my God, I'm giving, I'm giving this up. I'm not able to do this. I'm restricted. I, I have to fast. But as I've I've grown older and I guess closer to my faith and and realized that I, I do want to put God in the center of things and not have that divinity be on the periphery of my life. I've realized that, like you said, it's a welcome guest. It's no longer a, oh my goodness, I, I'm not able to do this, or I'm giving this up, or I'm sacrificing this, but rather it's, I get to now focus my energy and my time and my thoughts on, on God and on this divinity. So I always thought it was so beautiful that, again, just to see the Muslim community come together during Ramadan and then be able to celebrate together on Eid. And, and it, again, it's just, it was, it was something that I could relate to coming from a culture that also has that, has fasting as a, a very predominant ritual or, or thing that we do. It's, ritual is not the right word. It's, it's, it's a way of worship, right? And so I, I did, it was hard for me to relate to some of the other cultures that didn't understand that. But as soon as I I learned that there's another faith that does this and they they do it in the same way and with that same reverence, it was really lovely for me to be able to relate to that on that mm -hmm. level. Yeah, in the Quran it says, we have ordained the fasting upon you as we have ordained ordained it on those before you. So there are other faiths, of course, that have uh, fasting. But like you were saying, a lot of people may think, oh my God, I'm going to have to give up this or that. But most Muslims, they just welcome the month and the preparation ahead of time. And you try to, anything worldly that you have to do during that month, you try to get it done before that. So you can devote yourself to just uh, worship and taking part in this great month where there's so much there's so much reward and it's also a time for you to connect with your community so even though we spend our day fasting and but the end of the day we try to break fast together now this is all pre covid but you know our community comes together to to break their fast together because we know that there are those who either can't afford to make a meal or have a meal. And there are those who don't have time. There are students that are busy or those who are not well. And so we just come together because this is the time when we're fasting all day and we get to feel what people who don't have food all the time feel. And this way you can become have more empathy. And it's the time to give in charity. 
It's the time to give those who are needy and can use our help. So, so it is a very, very special time. Uh, I know families that turn the TV around facing the wall during the month of Ramadan. So that, but it is, it's kind of a self-control. Yeah. You stay away from food and you may get hungry. But it's amazing how you, the first day, maybe you'll be hungry or a little bit thirsty, but then your body just gets so used to it and you build up that. The only thing I miss in Ramadan is I never feel like I never get enough sleep. <laughs> Because we, we have the late night prayer. So after the last evening prayer that we do all the time, there's a longer prayer that's about an hour and a half. And it's not required, but the mosque is full. People come because uh, if you come every night, they re read one uh, chapter of the Quran. The Quran has 30 chapters. So if you go every night, you cover the whole Quran. And there's a lot of blessing in just uh, doing any acts of devotion or worship in Ramadan. And yeah, and then we come home after that late night prayer when it's a long day and the sun sets at eight o'clock and then everything gets pushed back. So you get less and less sleep. And then we have to get up early in the morning before dawn in order to have a meal to get ready for a day of fasting. So again, that takes a little bit away from your sleep. But like I said, you're, our bodies are amazing. You do get used to it, and it it doesn't it isn't as hard as some people who haven't tried it think. Like, oh my God, you're gonna go go a whole month without food? I'm like, no, not the whole month without food. We do eat at sunset. <laughs> no water all day? You're gonna die. <laughs> No, even children. Children don't have to fast, of course, but but children like to do what their parents they see their parents doing, and uh, it can be done. When my kids were little and they wanted to fast and they wanted to take part, and I knew they're too young to really do it, so I asked them to fast for half the day. I say you have a choice: first part or second part, or you can fast from a certain food. How about today, no pizza or something like that? <laughs> so they feel like they're part of the family and they get used to it. They get into the, the whole routine. And then when they're old enough around the age of puberty, then they can start doing the real fast. Yeah, some of my very close Muslim friends have told me that it's, it's actually quite the opposite. A lot of people looking outside outside looking in think, oh, you don't have food for a whole month. You're going to be so tired and exhausted. And But They've told me that if anything, your energy, their energy is so high throughout that entire month. And afterwards, it's like this just complete rejuvenation of their spirit and their soul and their being. And so I, I always think that that's something that I like to remember when when someone who's not familiar with with Ramadan says something that's maybe out of ignorance, I like to remind them that no, it's it's actually quite the opposite. And and it's really wonderful if you get a chance to speak with someone who practices how they feel about about that entire experience. Yeah, it's amazing. We've had like Allah had friends who told her they want to fast with her and they did. And it was like, oh wow, they felt like so good about it. You know, they wanted to try it. They have all my kids. They've all um, had friends who wanted to try it with them. And they they did. And it was an experience for them. As we, as we bring our conversation to a, a close for today, how can our listeners learn more about Islam, connect with the local Muslim community, just generally draw closer in not only in knowledge, but also relationship, as we talked about, with our local Muslim community? I think if you want to know, actually get to know a Muslim. I mean, you can Google things or not everything on Google is correct, but to actually know someone and just uh, befriend them, visit our local mosque. It's open for any visitors at any time. We do our Friday prayers. Friday is our holy day. Like for the Jews, it's uh, Saturday. And for the Christians, it's Sunday. For us, it's Friday, which is a work day, unfortunately, but a lot of people take their lunch hour at, at around one twenty is when we start our sermon, and then there's a prayer, and usually we have lunch together. There's lunch, and there's people hang around and talk, and all this, of course, no food these days, but just uh, getting to know someone that way. One thing I'd like to tell people is never feel afraid to approach someone to ask 
sometimes people approach me and say, I really don't want to offend you. Or is it okay if I ask you? I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> I'd rather you ask me rather than just wonder or not know or assume. <laughs> so most Muslims you'll approach, they would be more than happy to talk to you. Our mosque is, okay, I'm going to say after COVID and all that, it's, it, it'll be much easier to make connections. We welcome any guests. We often at least once a month, we have either school groups or church groups or groups from the local synagogue that come and visit. And that's a really good one. It's open to anyone. Even UCSB classes, sometimes they'll encourage them to come or make it one of their field trips to come and attend a prayer. And this way you get to know people. And I think there's nothing better than actually knowing someone and talking to them reading about them and listening about Muslims or watching a movie. Well, that may be very well, but actually getting to know someone is, is the way to go. Getting to know someone is, is the best. Well, experiencing it yourself is always the best. But then if that's not available, getting to know someone who experiences it, whatever it is that you're trying to learn about, is definitely better than reading it on Google. So I agree. Yeah, Google, you never know what you'll find there. <laughs> Afaf and Kunjal, it's been awesome to be in conversation with you both today. This has been a wonderful and relaxing conversation. I hope that our listeners enjoy our conversation as, as much as I did. And I look forward to being in conversation and relationship with both of you going forward. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Afaf. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you. It was nice meeting you both. Thank you for joining us in conversation today. What I enjoyed most about our conversation with Afaf was hearing about how she turned challenging moments into educational ones and brought people together through knowledge, awareness, and love. I was also inspired by the strength, resilience, and faith that Afaf, her family, the Muslim community, and the interfaith community within Santa Barbara all displayed during the 20-year process to build our local Islamic center. Lastly, I cherished hearing about her lovely practice of looking for the full moon to establish the beginning of Ramadan. It made me reflect on my own experiences of chasing the moon and how special those moments can be. Next week, we'll have a conversation with Reverend Dr. David Moore, who is an activist pastor at New Covenant Worship Center. Please subscribe to our podcast to see our latest episodes each week and share it with your friends, family, coworkers, rivals, strangers, Hey, even your pets. And remember, you can always reach out to us on social media and by emailing us at thehumanfamilypodcast at gmail.com. Take care.